Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Getting a bit of help to find a romantic partner is nothing new. Matchmakers have been a part of human history, well, it seems like for as long as we've been writing stories about it. But it's always been a little taboo to seek outside help or to advertise yourself. Until recently, when it always seems taboo not to do so and then complain about the fact that you don't have a romantic partner. Things are changing, and maybe in ways in which are not so predictable. But understanding the patterns of human coupling is really hard. It's very complex. And one of the side benefits of dating apps is that now researchers have access to big data. And maybe finally we can start to understand these patterns, what it means when a person is searching for someone else and the kinds of decisions they make and whether or not they end up long term with that partner. Of course, there's lots of moving parts. But I actually think we're entering a time where behavioral science gets to answer some pretty interesting questions, even if those questions might only be relevant for a couple of years before the next trend takes over. So I was curious to meet Logan Yuri. She's a behavioral scientist. She helped run Google's behavioral science team called the Irrational Lab in partnership with Dan Ariely, who's a previous guest on our show. And now she's the director of relationship science at a new dating app called Hinge. Well, it's new to me anyway. She took her behavioral science training and turned into a dating coach. And now she wrote a book called How to Not Die Alone. Logan Yuri, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So we love having behavioral scientists on the show because it really is the intersection of science and society as they are colliding. <laughs> and that's like really the sweet spot of our show. So I'm delighted to have you. And, and just in time for Valentine's Day, we can talk about dating. Woohoo, let's do it. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I really appreciated about your, your book uh, is right from the first page, you acknowledge that a lot of the research has been done on heteronormative people, heterosexual couples. So can we just can you just give us a lay in the, of the land of, um, you know, how we can be inclusive uh, for people from the LGBTQ plus community? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a great place to start this conversation. And yes, that is the author's note that I leave at the beginning of the book, which is that the bad news is that a lot of the research that has been done has been done on heterosexual couples or heterosexual singles. The good news is that when that research has been duplicated and includes LGBTQ plus individuals, it oftentimes applies. And that has to do with some of the fact that a lot of what we're going to talk about with relationship science and how love works and how attraction works, a lot of that is universal. And many of us have the same dating blind spots that hold us back from finding love. Many of us have the same you know, cultural baggage that makes it hard for us to make connections. And so I really did try to be as inclusive in, as possible in the book, whether that was interviewing people from all orientations and identities to making sure that I was telling a lot of different types of love stories. And that was absolutely a priority. And I'm, I'm glad that that's the first thing that people read when they open the book. Awesome. Me too. <laughs> so I also want to get our listeners on board with your approach, uh, because, you know, typically we would not have a love coach on the show, <laughs> um, because most love coaches are not rooted in science. And our show is, is about science. So tell us a little bit about your background and your approach to this topic. Absolutely. Yeah. So I studied psychology with a secondary concentration in women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard. And I've always been super interested in how people think. And I first applied this interest at Google, where I ran the behavioral science unit called the Irrational Lab. And there we took insights from the field of behavioral science, the, the, the study of how we think and how we make decisions. And I applied it to Google products and Google marketing. And at the time, I was very interested in dating and relationships. And I was single and I was using the dating apps and I was struggling. And I thought to myself, how can I marry these two interests of mine? And since then, in a couple of different ways, I've been able to actually take the best insights from behavioral science and apply them to dating and relationships. And so I've done that through writing my new book, How to Not Die Alone. And now I do that as part of my role at Hinge. Hinge is one of the biggest dating apps out there right now. And I help lead a research team called Hinge Labs. And I have this highfalutin title, Director of Relationship Science. But it really is very science-based. Everything I'm doing is research-based. And I absolutely want to differentiate myself from you know, the love guru telling you just to, to tune into how you feel. And I want to give you the science behind everything. If I had to summarize my philosophy, I would say a great relationship is the culmination of a series of good decisions. Make good decisions along the way and you'll, and you'll wind up in a really strong relationship. Make bad decisions along the way and you'll wind up in no relationship or not the one you want to be in. And I hope that that's empowering to people because we can actually break down each step of the dating process from why are you single, what are your bad habits, to how can you change them, how can you get back out there, all of the different stages up until should we get married. And if you think about just making small changes at each step of the way, it really demystifies finding this great partnership that you're looking for. You know, you skipped over the irrational lab part. And um, we've had Dan Ariely on this show, like whenever we can, because I'm a huge fan of his work. And in fact, the one dating piece of advice that I ever give to my students, which is based in science, is based on some of his work. So I just wanted to take a quick, brief aside tangent. Um, like, what did you guys do at the irrational lab in Google? It's so intriguing. 
Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is I am also a big Dan Ariely fan. He just posted a video on Instagram yesterday about my book, and he just started by saying that he didn't like the title, How to Not Die Alone. And it just made me laugh so much. It just felt so incredibly Dan. Like, first of all, he's so honest and also just like, you know, it's a fair critique. And if you want to, we can get into why I chose that title. But I just love the way that Dan thinks. I love the way that he lives. He's really inspirational. And, you know, I don't have a PhD, but I essentially feel like I went to Dan Ariely University, spending, you know, hundreds of hours with him at this applied behavioral science lab at Google. And so I can't get into all of the different experiments, but one thing that I can talk about is uh, we did an interesting experiment around shifting people's mindset. And so Google makes its money mostly through the Google Ads product, right? A lot of small and medium businesses that are running ads on Google Search and other Google properties. And people would sign up and they would expect to get instant results. And they would say, you know, I put $500 in to advertise, you know, my local dentist's office and nothing happened. And then they would churn, they would leave. And the truth is that it takes around three months for people to get good at using the ads program and for the ads algorithm to get to know you and your customers and your website. And so we had to make a shift and we had to help people understand this is a longer road. You're not going to see instant results. So we ran an intervention at a call center and we basically had a small percentage of the calls coming in from these small and medium businesses. They went to certain call reps and they would say, hi, you know, welcome to my AdWords three-month program. And everything they talked about was framing things in terms of three months. And they would send people pictures that said, your account is a baby seedling and it will one day grow to a tree and we're going to talk over the next three months. And everything was reframing it in terms of three months. And after the trial ended, we saw that people who had been put into this experimental condition compared to people who just went through the regular process of calling were much more likely to stick around and they were much more successful. And so it's this idea of um, understanding, okay, first of all, what was happening, their mindset was wrong. Then how can we shift their mindset? Okay, we can anchor them in the idea of it taking three months and it being a journey. And then we were able to see positive results that these people were much more willing to stick around and, and give AdWords a try and understand that it would take longer. It's, you know, so interesting to think about framing as just such a small thing and yet such a huge thing. And I think it's really at the core, too, of some of your theses about what we should be doing when we're dating. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the dating landscape and how online dating has, has shifted the way that we approach mate selection. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is just that dating as we know it is actually a pretty new thing. In the book Labor of Love, my friend Maura Weigel talks about the fact that dating as we know it has only been around since about 1890. And there was a bunch of things at play there, you know, the rise of urbanization, women working outside of the home. There was a, a bunch of things going on. But really, if you think about 1890 as the beginning of dating as we know it, that's actually pretty, pretty new. And so this is very new in the span of human history. Then we actually say, what does it mean dating as we know it? Actually, a lot of dating right now is online dating. Well, online dating started in 1994 with Kiss.com, followed by Match a year later. And then we say, okay, well, what's 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 dating right now? Online dating. It's it's really it's really the apps. And so the apps have only been around for about ten years. And so when you think about partner selection and choosing from potentially thousands of people and having you know a thousand dates in your pocket, right? Steve Jobs said a thousand songs in your pocket, and now we have a thousand dates in your pocket. This is a very new phenomenon. And so just contextualizing it that way 
I think is helpful for people because if you feel like we're living through this really seismic change, we are. And this is new. And a lot of people are struggling with making this decision for themselves versus having their friends and family involved, having a matchmaker involved. Society is telling us this is one of the most important decisions that you'll ever make, but everything is up to us. Our identities are defined by by us, right? We used to be, you know, you're Jewish and you live in Bucharest and you eat kosher food and you go to the synagogue twice a week. Now people can define every part of their own identity. And that's that's very exciting and empowering, but it can also be terrifying because you're writing your own story. And what if you don't like the story that you write? And finally, our expectations of relationships have really changed. One of my mentors is Eli Finkel, and he wrote this great book, The All or Nothing Marriage. And he talks about the fact that We used to think about marriage as the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're in a marriage for for security and safety, and you're you're having your your basic needs met. And then over time, it's gone up through Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's gone up to to love and then belonging. And now we're actually at the top. We we look for marriage to give us self-actualization. And so there's some nice sides of that. He says that the best marriages today are the best marriages of all time. But it also means that a lot of marriages are ending now because people feel like their partner's not helping them self-actualize. And what Eli says is people are ending marriages today for reasons that our grandparents could never, never fathom. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's certainly really true of of my own experience and and sort of how I've watched my my own views uh, with with respect to partners and marriage shift even over in in my lifetime. And you know, I. I have been married for more than 10 years. And so like, I don't know what it's like to be on these apps. And it's terrifying to me to think about just this overload of choice. I mean, (laughs) like, like what's stopping people from not just going on literally a different date twice a day? Um, And, and where is the, you know, how do you, when I, when I think about like, how do I explain to my children that, that there's something good about a long-term partnership that is messy and takes time to build and can be painful. But, you know, for me, it's been worth it. But I don't know if that's just because, you know, the cognitive dissonance is is, is that I, I feel like that's what I did. So now I'm saying that that's what they should do. What what can you tell us about like what the data show in terms of are people less less interested in long term partnerships and you know is that is that really an issue moving forward or is there some kind of normalization or or I don't know like you know return to the mean that's happening now that these dating apps have been around for ten years yeah that's an interesting question yeah so it seems like you're framing it with the paradox of choice and the fact that we have access to so many different choices are people less interested in long-term relationships that's not really what i've seen i've more seen that people still want long-term relationships for the same reasons that people always have right people want to go through life with somebody people want a love story like they see in the movies i think the issue now is that people are just struggling to actually figure out who to commit to so i think the desire to commit is still there for many people it's just that they're finding it harder and harder to make the choice. And one thing I, if if we want to talk about pandemic dating today, we can, but one thing that we've really seen at Hinge through our research is that people are more interested than ever in finding a relationship. And part of that is they're very isolated and they're alone and they've been alone throughout the pandemic and it's become harder to meet anybody out and about. And there's a lot more logistical labor that goes into setting up dates. And 
what we're seeing consistently in our research is people are really hoping to find someone. They feel more serious about finding a relationship. They want to be intentional. They want to be more selective about their partners. And it feels like this was a jolt to the system that they needed to prioritize relationships more. And that's actually why I called the book How to Not Die Alone, even if Dan doesn't like the title. It's because I wanted it to sort of shock you and to say, okay, I'm on a path and I'm actually on a path towards dying alone. And I'm making a bunch of decisions that are helping me stay there. And if I don't want to head in that direction and I want to change course, then I need to actually take action. And it's supposed to sort of give you that that feeling of fear because that's a big motivator for behavioral change. So yeah, I was reading about like this this uh, this tendency in cold metropolitan areas like Chicago or um, New York where people kind of couple up for the winter. They like winter. And then when the spring comes, they decouple. Um, and that some, something similar was happening as outdoor dining was shutting down in various places. So, you know, some places earlier than the rather than later um, for a second time during the pandemic. So when the second wave was hitting in the fall, people were starting to, you know, try to try to forge deeper or, you know, become more uh, exclusive to each other so that they have at least one person during the pandemic that they can hang out, hang out with. Um, do you see evidence of that in, you know, through the Hinge app or, or in your own research? Yeah. So that's the phenomenon you're talking about is called cuffing season. And exactly as you described it, around October in cold weather climates, people start coupling up because they want a warm body to spend the cold winter months with. And then the stigma of cuffing season is that people break up in the spring when it's easier to date again. And so this year we were calling that Corona cuffing, people who are rushing to get into a relationship because they don't want to, you know, quarantine or, or, or spend the pandemic alone. And so we definitely saw that. But what we're seeing now is basically a lot of people told us that they spent the early months of the pandemic being really self-reflective about their own habits. And so um, over 50% of Hinge users said that they broke a bad dating habit, whether it was not talking to an ex or not chasing after somebody who wasn't interested in them. And a another large percentage told us that they had developed good dating habits, things like being more straightforward with someone about what they're looking for. And so this is my optimistic perspective, but what I'm hoping to see and what I'm predicting is that you have that motivation of cuffing season or corona cuffing, right? The motivation of, of not spending the pandemic alone paired with that intentionality of those months spent doing that self-reflection. And the combination is that you will see people getting into relationships, but hopefully not relationships that are just going to end when the pandemic is over. And then in terms of the research that we've been seeing Prior to the pandemic, around 2018 or 2019, Michael Rosenfeld of Stanford, he does this ongoing survey of how we met, and he found that online dating had overcome through friends and family and through work as the number one way that people were meeting each other. So we're already at a place where online dating is the most common way to meet. But now, because people can't meet at work and it's much harder to meet through family and friends or at a wedding, online dating has become really the, tr the truly dominant way that couples are meeting during the pandemic. And I just learned this stat, but Hinge, before the pandemic, was setting up a date every three seconds. Now they're setting up a date every two seconds. 
And do you have a sense that this is like there's this is that there's no going back, or do you think that once uh, once we're able to hang out again in in person, that those numbers are shift again? We'll see what happens. I mean, there was a group of people who had been hesitant to try online dating and did try it, and maybe they'll like it and stick around. There are people who took this time off from dating, and we'll see what happens when you know, the floodgates open and and people can meet up safely again. I I think it's really hard to know and different people had different experiences. But one thing I can say is that the rise of video dating has been fascinating. And the majority of Hinge users tell us that they're going to continue to use video date as part of their dating process because they feel like it's this really efficient way to, to check in and see how do we get along? You know, do I like the sound of your voice? Do we seem to have a similar sense of humor? And so that's something that might have taken a while to become popularized, but it really took off during the pandemic. And I think it's here to stay. So I get the impression that these dating apps are are quite, can be quite different from each other and that they have, you know, they target maybe different populations or people that are making decisions on the basis of different criteria. Um, you sort of talk about three dating tendencies in your book. Um, can you talk about those and do they map on to specific apps? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can I can specifically just speak to Hinge, but Hinge's whole thing is that it's for people looking for a relationship. It's trying to find people who are serious about finding someone. Uh, one stat that I really love is that 25% of people who sign up for Hinge actually drop off during the sign-up flow, which for any tech company would be terrible. It's like, oh, why are we adding so much friction? How can we reduce friction, right? That's like exactly the kind of problem that I dealt with at on the Google behavioral science team is um, reducing the number of people who drop off in an onboarding session like that. But Hinge actually takes pride in it because the idea is that if you won't put enough effort into uploading six photos and filling out these dating prompts, then you're probably not really looking for a relationship, right? We want to find people who are serious and will put the effort in. And if this kind of more intense signup flow makes people drop off, that's actually a good thing because that's that's weeding out the people who aren't serious about it. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.
So what are these patterns of behavior that can make dating something that is not as good as it should be? Yeah. So in my work as a dating coach, you know, I was seeing lots of different clients from lots of different backgrounds and they each had a unique story. But I I noticed over and over that these patterns were emerging and it found it seemed like people fit into one of three categories and the categories are based on their dating blind spots. And so dating blind spots are patterns of behavior or attitudes that prevent somebody from finding love, but which they can't identify on their own. And so what connects all of them is that they have unrealistic expectations. And so the first one is called the romanticizer. And this is the person who loves love. I had a client named Maya who I talk about in the book. And she, her parents had had this beautiful long marriage and she grew up watching Disney movies on VHS and she just really wanted that Prince Charming and she wanted him to find her. She didn't want to put the effort in. And she had this vision of the meet cute where he would, he would reach for the perfect tomato at the farmer's market the same time that she would, and they would fall in love, and it would be effortless, and they would live happily ever after. And she, keep, she kept either not getting into relationships because she wouldn't put the work in, or she found that um, she would break it off with people because when they hit that inevitable rough spot, she would say, must not be my soulmate or else it wouldn't be this hard. And for people like Maya, the romanticizer, my advice is to switch from what's called the soulmate mindset, the idea that there's one person out there for you and it'll be really easy and it'll be all passion and butterflies to what's called the work it out mindset. And this is the understanding that relationships take effort and that if you feel like you're working hard, then you're doing it right. And Maya did find someone and he was a completely different package than what she thought she was going for. But in the end, he made her happier than anyone else, and she was able to overcome that romanticizer tendency. Okay, I want to get to the other two, but I also have a kind of a follow-up question on that. I mean, isn't there at some point, like, if it's too hard, you know, it's just not going to be sustainable? That was the one thing, like, I remember when I was trying to decide whether or not um, I should marry my husband. I just felt like, at, you know, most of the time, being with him was better than not being with him. <laughs> And that, you know, it wasn't hard. Like, we had our issues, but it wasn't hard to be together, um, which was very different from all my previous relationships. Was that just, you know, <laughs> was that what, 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 you know, what do you think about this idea that if it's just too hard, it's just not, not going to work out? Yeah, that's a question that I get a lot. And this is part of the whole, you know, love is, is an art and it's a science. There's no exact equation that I can say where, you know, if it's hard more than 42% of the time, then it's bad. But if it's, if it's hard less than that, then that's the right type of hard. I think it really depends. And depending on whether or not we get to this later in the conversation, I do have several sections in the book that are about breakups. And part of it is exploring the same thing. It's saying, is this person actually not a good fit for me? Or is it that my expectations of relationships are too high and I'm actually not bringing my best self to the relationship and there's this external factor like they've lost their job or they're, they have a sick parent or they're going through a bout of depression? And so these are truly the questions that people ask where they wonder, should it be easier than this? Is it too hard? And I, I don't have a, a black and white answer that exactly answers that. It's more... Um, helping people kind of back into how are they are feeling for how long are there things that they can change, and I, I really actually like your frame, which is are you happier with this person or without them? I think that's lovely. So okay, the other two sort of uh, uh, 
typical characters in your book. Um, Let's talk about the maximizer. Yeah, right. So, okay. So the romanticizer had unrealistic expectations of relationships, and now the maximizer has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so these are my clients that sit down on my couch or pre-pandemic they did and say, you know, I really like my girlfriend, but could I be 5% happier with somebody else? And this is the person that goes to wirecutter.com before they research anything. They have a state of mind that They need to turn over every stone and only when they've seen the complete set can they make a decision. And so they're really obsessed with making the quote unquote objective right decision. And this is different from the type of person known as a satisficer. And this is a concept maximizer and satisficer that comes from Herbert Simon. And basically a maximizer wants to see everything and then make a choice and a satisficer sets a bar. They set a meaningful benchmark and then they say, when I find something that hits that benchmark that satisfies my expectations, I'll commit to it. And so maximizers are so focused on- Let me just pause you just for a second and be like, isn't the whole dating app world like basically creating maximizers out of everyone? I mean, you've got now this like, you know, plethora of choices. So it feels like it's pushing people in that direction. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think there's several factors at play. I think the fact that we can research so much stuff that, you know, I meet people who have to look at 100 Yelp reviews before they'll hire somebody who cleans their carpet. People go on trips and they have to read every trip advisor about every single possible experience where they're going, right? So there's there's this obsession with research and sort of this anxiety that if, if only I had done more research, then I wouldn't have made a mistake. And so that's part of it. And then, yes, of course, right? We have the dating apps, which have a lot of options. It does contribute to this feeling of the paradox of choice, which is that you regret the decision that you make or you make no decision at all. And I think that there that society is absolutely moving towards maximizers in every in every part of life, especially in dating. Okay, so now that we've we've figured out that maximizers exist and what they are, and that they're probably even more common uh, these days uh, with through the dating apps, uh, what what do you tell them? Yes. So the first thing is just helping them understand that. Why why satisficers are so wise? And so maximizers, usually when I talk to them about this, they say, you just want me to settle. You, you just want me to give up. And you, you know, satisficers settle. And no, it's really not about settling. The point is that maximizers are so obsessed with making the right decision. But what actually matters more is how you feel about your decision. So let's say that you're shopping for an espresso machine and the maximizer does 20 hours of research and then buys the one that Wirecutter recommends, but then a few days later they hear about another one and they just stew over the fact that they didn't get this this new version. Who is that person really happy about the fact that they bought this well-researched one versus somebody else says, oh, I want a coffee machine. I've, I've heard Nespresso is a good brand. They go into the store, they buy it, they leave, and then they feel great about it. And so all the research shows that satisficers are happier about their decisions, and that's what matters. It's the subjective experience of how you feel about your decision. And so there is this really cool mathematical riddle that's called the secretary problem. The secretary problem is this idea that imagine that you were hiring for a secretary and you know you have 100 possible applicants, and you go through them one at a time, and after each person, you have to say yes or no. And so the question becomes, do you choose someone early because you don't know if the rest of the people are duds or do you wait until the end because you want to see what's out there? And so you don't want to choose too early. You don't want to choose too late. What's the optimal time to stop? This is part of a 
mathematical inquiry called optimal stop theory. And so what mathematicians have found is that you should go through 37% of the applicants. At that point, you should say, who is the single best secretary application of the first 37 people? And that person is now your meaningful benchmark. And then you hire the next person who is as good or better than your meaningful benchmark. And so if you apply this to dating, you can't just say, well, I'm going to date 100 people and after 37, I'll do this, right? That's no one has any idea how many people they're going to date. But you might have a rough approximation of how long you think you'll be dating. And this is what they do in the book Algorithms to Live By. They say, if you're going to date from 18 to 40, 37% is 26.1. And so after your 26.1 years of age, you should look at that meaningful benchmark, and then you should invest in the next person who is as good or better than your meaningful benchmark. And I can just imagine somebody listening to your show right now, rolling their eyes and saying, give me a break, 26.1. This is so specific and hyper-rational and all of that. But look, it's 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 an interesting concept, and the reason I include it in the book is because I think it sends a message. The message is you likely have already dated somebody who would have made you happy long-term, and then instead of seeking that 5% happier, what actually is going to make a difference in your life is choosing someone great and investing in them. And give up this idea that relationships are 99% who you choose and 1% the effort you put in. And it's actually so much more about how you show up for your relationship every day. And that if you realize you could make a great relationship with a lot of different people, you just actually have to commit. I think that helps people shift from always looking for the next best thing to actually choosing someone and investing in it. Wow. I just feel so uh, gratified because I met my husband when I was 27. (laughs) Anyway. <laughs> That's so cute. I love that. I also, well, I met my husband in college, but we also started dating when we were 27. <laughs> um, okay. So I get the maximizer. I get the romanticizer. Um, what's the third category? Yeah. So the third one is the hesitator. And this person has unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so this is the person, you might have a friend like this who says, I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be ready to date when I have more money in the bank. I'll be ready to date when I have a more impressive job. And they're always focused on the I'll be ready when. And they're they're not perfect and and they think that they can only get out there when they are 100% ready to date. And they're making a few mistakes. So they're underestimating the opportunity cost of not getting better at dating. And so what I mean by that is dating is a skill. And the only way to get better at dating is by actually dating. And so dating is kind of like stand-up comedy. You can't do stand-up comedy without an audience, then it's just writing. And you can't do dating without an audience because, well, that's a whole other thing. And, and, you know, the hesitator thinks, if I'm perfect, then I'll be ready for love. But why would you want someone who loves you conditionally? Why would you want someone who loves you 10 pounds lighter, but not now? And so the other thing that they're underestimating is learning the type of person that they want to be with. And that's actually really important. Dating is experimentation and seeing what side of you somebody brings out. And when you go on dates with different people, you allow yourself to be surprised. Um, And so what I say to hesitators is it's really about getting out there. And so the first thing I recommend is just 
choosing a deadline, something in the next few weeks and saying, I'm going to start dating at this point. And what that means right now, at least is downloading the apps, getting some flattering profile pictures. Then I say, get some accountability, tell a friend, I really want to focus on dating this year. Will you hold me to that? Will you encourage me? If I tell you I want to give up, will you tell me to keep going? And then finally, just really seeing yourself as a dater, having this identity shift. And I had this really lovely client who the first time we spoke, he said, I'm fat. My mom's fat. My dad's fat. My whole family's fat. And he was absolutely a hesitator. He had very little experience. And he said, I know that I just have to lose weight before I get naked with anyone or before I start dating. And through our work together, we actually went shopping. We did a little queer eye moment and we got him some more flattering clothes and clothes that actually fit. And, you know, he looked great, but it wasn't about losing weight. And he ended up hanging out with this girl from college that he knew. And then they hung out a few more times. And then he went to visit her in the city where she lived. And he was telling her about her dating and how he was ramping up on that. And for the first time, this old friend of his could actually see him as a sexual being, a dating person, and he could see himself that way. And he actually ended up moving to that woman's city and they're still together. And the point of that story is that he didn't lose weight. He lost his limiting identity that he wouldn't be lovable until he lost weight. And once he really adopted that identity as someone worthy of love and someone who could put themselves out there, that's really what made the difference for him. So at the beginning, you talked about how um, the key to finding a life partner, so the answer to your how to not die alone question is a series of better decisions or better choices. So can you give us a kind of highlight reel of what do you think are the most important decisions and what should we consider when we're trying to make them? Yeah, absolutely. And so the book really follows this journey. The beginning is you're single and you don't want to be. What are the blind spots holding you back? And those are the three the three tendencies. And if people are curious, they can take the quiz on my website. The next piece is how are you going to present yourself on dating apps? How are you going to interact on dating apps? And it's understanding that you might think you have this type. You might think that, oh, I know exactly what he or she is going to look like and be like. I just have to find them. And so I encourage people to be a bit more humble and to say, I might be wrong about the type of person that makes me happy long term. And so many of the couples I interviewed, one of the people would say, I never would have met him on a dating app. I would have filtered him out by religion or height or age. And just being more open-minded about the type of people that you interact with on a dating app. And there's been this really sad rise in relation shopping. And relation shopping is the process of looking for a romantic partner like you'd look for any sort of purchase. And that's a, a difference. We used to do relationshiping, looking for somebody to, to settle down with. And so I'd really encourage people to avoid that relation shopping mentality of you know, seeing people as these two-dimensional playing cards that you're just trading. And then after that, the next stage is, is going on a date. And how do you make dates fun again? A lot of dates right now feel like job interviews, especially if you have your 4 to 5 p.m. Zoom call and then your 5.01 p.m. Zoom date. It, it really does feel like a networking meeting. And so I have a series of, of pieces of advice in the book about how to make dating more interesting, how to make it more fun, how to how to inject play into it, and really to understand that you want to make it an experience, not an interrogation. And then after that, the most common question is, should I see this person again? And oftentimes people say, oh, I didn't feel the spark or, you know, I didn't, I didn't get that pang of excitement that I expected. And so I have a default that I set in the book, which is the default is go on the second date. 
And the whole idea there is that we oftentimes write somebody off for the wrong reasons, or lots of people just aren't sparky. They don't give you that initial feeling of excitement right away. And so I encourage people to instead go for the slow burn, that person who takes more time to open up. And having this default of going on the second date is a great way to do that. And then after that, I go into some of the bigger relationship moments, right? These these relationship decision points. And I recommend that people do what's called deciding, being really intentional at every stage rather than sliding, which is just saying, oh, you know, I, I guess we're exclusive, right? And, and not really having that conversation. And so two that I point out are the DTR, the define the relationship conversation, and then moving in together. And those are two that people often just slide their way into. And couples that decide instead of sliding are more successful, more happy, uh, sorry, happier, and they have better sex. And then at the end, I help people answer the question, should we break up or should we get married? And look, it's not always one or the other, but oftentimes people do get to that point. And so it's really thinking, is this the right relationship for me? Do I tend to stay in relationships too long or too short? And then finally, uh, as the person kind of goes through the book, if they decide to stay in the relationship, they may get to the milestone of should we get married? And there's a series of questions to ask yourself at that point. So I want to remind our listeners that um, Logan Urie's book, How to Not Die Alone, The Surprising Science That Will Help You Find Love, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, I wanted to end by asking you if there are any surprising myths that you have found are not true um, through the research that you've done. Yes. Well, can I talk about the myths of the spark and am I allowed to curse on your show? Uh, yes and yes. Okay, great. I don't know why I find such pleasure in saying this. I'm like a elementary school boy, but my favorite chapter title is called Fuck the Spark. And I really like saying Fuck the Spark. And I was once speaking at a retreat and I got everyone chanting Fuck the Spark and it made me so happy. And there's there's three myths around the spark that I'd like to bust. So the first one is that if you don't feel the spark on your initial meeting, then it can never develop. And a lot of people write really quality human beings off because they didn't feel that initial spark. And here's why it's not true. Research shows that only 11% of people experience love at first sight. And love and appreciation for someone else can grow over time. There's something called the mere exposure effect. The more that we're around something, the more that we like it. And that's why people often end up dating somebody at work or maybe a roommate in a big house or maybe the person who lives in their soft, sophomore dorm. It's that the more you're exposed to somebody, the more that they grow on you. And so, yes, the spark can definitely grow over time. And that's why a lot of people end up you know, marrying their friends. It, it took a while for that attraction to grow, but then it's really strong and it has a great foundation. The second myth is that if you feel the spark, it's a good thing. And look, some people are just very sparky. I talk about Burning Man Brian in the book. This guy I met at Burning Man looks like Keanu Reeves' better looking brother, and he definitely gave me the spark. But turns out that had more to do with who he was, sort of um, a bit narcissistic and very charming and certainly very hot. And he gave a lot of people the spark. And that was more about who he was than what was there between us. And so understanding that oftentimes we confuse anxiety for chemistry, having the spark is not necessarily a good thing. 
And then the last one, it might seem fairly obvious, but you'd be surprised. A lot of couples stay together because of their how we met story. And so people feel like if you had this great beginning and this great spark, then the relationship is really one that's meant to be. And look, many divorced couples started with the spark. And so while it's nice to have a cute how we met story, it's only, you know, 0.0001% of all the time that you're potentially going to be together. And, you know, don't stay in a relationship too long because of your great how we met. And my advice is that instead of focusing on the spark, instead of writing people off because they didn't give you that initial feeling, you should really go for the slow burn. And that's the person who you like more and more over time who really grows on you. And I would say as someone who's married to a slow burn, I highly recommend it. Awesome. Logan, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Blyle, and Dale LeMaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. I'll see you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.